this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. And Father God, we can rest in the sufficiency of your word. Lord, I thank you, Father God, as you have invited us, Lord, just to take time in these different chapters of the scripture, Lord, to engage you, to hear what you have to see and how you have formed and shaped your people throughout the ages. God, we know that you are with us. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our minds, Lord? And would you draw us near, God, because we love you, because you first loved us. God, would you give us hearts to hear and to receive your word? Would you reveal yourself to us, Father, and would you reveal your son, Jesus? In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. About 3,000 years ago, there lived a king named David. Now, David was taken out from among his sheep on a day that he did not expect to be named king. He was with his sheep, tending them, doing what he normally did on a regular basis. But something special was going on that day. See, God had sent Samuel to anoint a new king because he had rejected Saul. And on that day, David is anointed as king, and then God gives him an opportunity to exercise what he had already been doing on the inside of him by slaying Goliath. David is brought into Saul's court to play an instrument because every time David played, it would drive out this tormenting spirit from Saul. David then flees from Saul and finds himself in a position where he is on the run constantly. But in that time, God is forming and shaping a man that he declared was a man after his own heart. He's uniting him together with these other people because he has an ultimate end and purpose for David to rule as king over Israel. Saul is killed in battle, and then David is anointed as the new king of Judah and eventually is anointed over all of Israel as the king. He rules and unites the kingdom and rules the largest territory that Israel ever had. David was a king that appointed leaders in God's tabernacle. He ensured that worship would go forth and happen 24 hours, seven days a week. This was a man who understood the heart of God. This was a man who God had shaped through suffering and trial and difficulty. And we get to a point in David's life in 2 Samuel 11 where something shifts in the heart of David. David gets to a point where there was a time where kings were supposed to go off to battle, usually in the spring, to to serve alongside their armies, not on the front line, but as a general would go off and be a military strategist for what the people were to do. Because all of Israel, the scripture says, was dwelling in tents. But something different happened this time that David was supposed to go out and serve in his position as king amongst the armies of God. He didn't go. And one night, 
in a malcontent mood. He can't sleep. He, he, he's not really settled. He got too much energy built up because he's, he's not where he's supposed to be. He finds himself on a roof of his palace. And he looks out and he sees a woman bathing. He inquires, he goes to somebody in his administration and says, do you know who that is? They say, of course, that's Bathsheba. That's the, that's the wife of Uriah. Bring it to me. David has Bathsheba brought to him. It says with the, she came, he lied with her. She left to go back home. And then she sins and tells him that I am pregnant. Well, David has to figure out what is he going to do. So he sends for Uriah. Hey, Uriah, how you been doing? Go home. Enjoy yourself. Take a few days off. Uriah being a righteous man because his fellow soldiers are camping out in the open and fighting against the enemies of Israel, decides that he will not go home and partake in the pleasures that his fellow comrades cannot partake in. So he decides to sleep outside. David is told this, and Uriah being a righteous man refuses to go into his home. So David sends a letter. Uriah carries that letter to Joab, who is the general of Israel. Uriah is killed in battle intentionally. David then takes Bathsheba after her mourning and welcomes her into his family as his wife. Nine to 12 months later, a child is born and this prophet is sent by God named Nathan. Nathan shows up and says, hey, David, I want to tell you a story. I need to get your insight on something. There was this man who had a lot. He had all the wealth and riches that one man could really hope to have. He had, he had everything that you would desire and want. And there was another man who had this one little lamb, more of a pet than a livestock. This man cared for this lamb. He took it into himself. This was, he treated it as precious and dear because he did not have all the riches and wealth that this other man had. So he treated it with such honor and respect. Well, Nathan tells a story to David continuing on that when this rich man received a, a visitor, instead of taking of what was his, he went to this man who had one lamb, and he took that lamb, and he slaughtered it, and he gave it to his guests. David, being the king that he is, being the man after God's own heart, being a righteous man, said, you bring him before me, he deserves murder. He deserves death. Nathan says, you are the man. This is David's response. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and a whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. This, this comes from that time in David's life when he is confronted with his own sin. When what he has tried to cover up and hide from is now revealed and out in the open. David's only response to God confronting him is to now plead that God would be merciful on his behalf. You know, in, this, in these 19 verses, David uses the, the possessive and um, personal pronouns of my, I, mine 34 times. So 34 times, David takes ownership of what he has done. He does not blame. He does not cast off. He does not say that this has happened because somebody did this. He begins to take ownership of the decisions that he's made that led him to this moment. There are 20 times, 20 requests that David makes of the Lord in these verses. 20 things that God says, will you do this for me? I ask that you would do this. I ask that you would be merciful. I ask that you would blot out my transgressions. I ask that you would blot out my iniquities. I ask that you would cleanse me of my sin. 20 times David requests of the Lord. And those 20 requests can be brought down into maybe three things. The first, David is asking God to cleanse him. The second, David is asking God to restore him. And the third is God, David is asking God to use him again. Now, Dave, David begins this, this, this prayer, this psalm, they plead for mercy. He appeals to God's mercy because in that moment of confrontation, he remembers that God has revealed himself as a God of mercy. God has revealed himself through his character and nature of one who has this faithful, loyal love. That if God has covenanted himself with you, he does not break that covenant. 
but he is true to his word. And so David appeals to the promises of God, to the mercy of God. And he remembers that when, that when God decided to reveal himself to Moses, the way that God revealed himself was through his character of mercy. Exodus 34, 5 through 7 says this, when, when, when Moses requested of God that you would show me your face, God, would you, would you show me your face? God said, I will not show you my face, but I will pass before you. And so he hides him and he reveals himself. And this is what happened in Exodus 34. It says, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, David knew what God's mercy looked like because he had experienced his mercy before. He had experienced what it meant to be a young boy who had no purpose other than just being with sheep and trying to be diligent and faithful what God had given him. And he knew what it was like for God to shine down his grace and his favor upon him and to take him from being in a pasture to being in the palace. So he knew what it was like for God to step in. He also knew what it was like to show mercy because he had an experience with Saul where he received something he did not deserve and yet he did not respond in kind because blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So David knew that he was in need of something and what that was was mercy. Now it's a good thing that David did not plead out for justice at that time because justice is not what he wanted because the penalty for his sin, which was murder, which was adultery, which was sexual exploitation of a woman who was bathing by herself on the roof who did not ask for, her to, for him to invite her into his house. It was blaspheming the name of the Lord. All of those are worthy of death. Justice demanded the death penalty, but he pleaded out to God for mercy. David is struck by how his unrighteousness and unfaithfulness has produced such terrifying results. So he says, God, have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. You know, it's, it's something when we're in need of God to do something, how he doesn't, he, he, he's like, yeah, I, I need this. But I can't give myself this. I, I need you to give me this. I cannot produce any righteousness in and of myself. I cannot make myself clean. I cannot undo what I've done. I need you to be merciful towards me. He says, God, would you blot out my transgressions? Would you wash me thoroughly from my iniquity? Would you cleanse me from my sin? The weight of what he had done was resting on his heart. I thought about what happens when God confronts us in our sins. I thought about how easy it can be for us to dismiss our sins and sometimes just say a quick prayer and really because we want to move on. 
We don't really want to sit in the messiness and the ugliness of what is on the inside of us and what's on the inside of us is producing. And so we point at other things, at other people, at other situations, and other circumstances. But David ran out of places to hide. He had nowhere else to go. He was confronted with the fact that he had sinned against God and God only. Now, something, because we can clearly see that he sinned against a bunch of people, right? Bathsheba has been sinned against. Uriah has been sinned against. The nation of Israel has been sinned against, but it is ultimately God who has been sinned against because God is the one who took David from the pasture and put him in the palace. He's the one who gave the boundary lines of his law and his word for his flourishing. He's the one that said, if you want to please and honor me, then you will honor and keep my word. I thought about what happens when people of positions of power sin. It not only affects them, it affects affects the community around them. And it also affects the institutions that they serve in. So as we dive into this more, we're going to look at it from those three vantage points. How our sin affects us, how it affects the people around us. And ultimately, how it affects our societies and institutions and organizations. David was king, right? David sat in a position of power. So not only did David cause all these people to sin, but he brought his administration into this. It's something as I was thinking about this. I used to work in government, right? And so you... My mind often thinks and works in like terms of like governmental things. And so as I looked and read this, I was thinking about how David, in his discontentment, sees Bathsheba and he says, hey, who is that to somebody in his administration? Go get her. Making them complicit in his sin. So not only is David's heart not right in this, But now he's bringing other people into it, brings Bathsheba into this. And then when Bathsheba sends to him and says, yo, David, I'm pregnant. And that's not like a, hey, we're having a baby or like, I know we was fooling around and we got a baby out of this. No, this is what have you done to me? Why have you shamed me in this way? What expect me now type of message? Like there is a child birthed out of what you have done to me, out of your sin, David. So David takes some of his closest advisors and they devise some type of plan to deal with the, the, the situation. Reminds me of an episode of, of Law and Order SVU or like Scandal or something. Like it is, it is, we have to fix this situation because this can be really bad and you could have some political enemies that rise up and try to take your place. So, David, we need to address this. You know what we should do? Let's call Uriah back. Let's address the situation by, by having him come. I'll give him a fruit basket, arrangements, and some wine, and a good time. Everything will be taken care of. Everything will be fine. When that plan doesn't work, they have to figure out what to do. So what he does is he now elicits Joab into this sin. So Joab is now complicit in this 
the armies of Israel are now complicit in this, and now all of Israel is a stench in God's eyes. Because of the man that God appointed as the leader has now used his power to exploit the position. Beloved, as I look at David's plea, I have to take and bear all of that in mind. Because David says this, he says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. It's always before me. God, I've been living under the weight of this for nine, 12 months. I've been living with this weight for a long time. I've been hiding. I'm not the same. I don't act the same. I don't think the same. I don't feel the same. This is crushing me. The weight of this shame, the weight of this guilt, the weight of this burden is too much. And I'm amazed. It's almost like God gave him time. Like God was being merciful and patient. Seeing if David would come to his senses and repent without having to be confronted. Seeing if this thing that was known by many people, if he would be moved and say, you know what? I've wronged you, Bathsheba. I've wronged Israel. I need to confess and repent. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen until this catalyst comes of Nathan proclaiming what David has done in this public setting. Beloved, I thought about this and I brought this up to Pastor Rob, how when I look at our churches, I look at the Southern Baptist Convention right now, I, I look at how, how we as a church body are dealing with the effects of powerful, powerful men who exploited their power and position to gain influence over women to abuse them. I look at the lengths that churches have gone to protect those people and how people in executive positions did nothing to help right the wrongs of the sins that were going on in those churches. I look at the institutional effects on the Bathshebas. The Bathshebas who we don't spend enough time talking about. We don't spend enough time looking at. We don't spend enough time thinking about the trauma that they experienced. We don't spend enough time asking ourselves what happens when she goes home. When she's sent away, when she is no longer useful to David. Beloved, when we have institutions or a community that has a history of unrepented sin, then it creates a culture of manipulation and exploitation. We create a space where we're willing to cover up sin to protect power. We do it for leaders in our community, leaders in our churches, political leaders, business leaders, deacons, elders, pastors, we are willing to cover up situations so that we can protect the institution and power all of while just filling up our souls and those institutions with more and more filth. Yeah. 
We've created a culture that needs to be confronted with the truth of the gospel as believers. Because we, in some very serious ways, as believers, and beloved, I do mean we, as the body of Christ, have some things that are out of step with the gospel. 1 John 1.8.10 says this, The Apostle John says in his epistle, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We need to cry out just as David did. God, yes, I was I was brought forth in iniquity. And my sin, and in sin, my mother conceived me, God. But I understand now that you desire truth in my inward parts, like that you desire for me to live and walk in truth that goes beyond any position that I may hold or any institution that I may love. God, would you purge me? Would you cleanse me? Would you wash me? And then I'll be clean. Would you make me hear joy and gladness? that the bones you have broken may rejoice. There is something, sin disfigures, beloved. Like sin, sin causes things that are supposed to be one way. Like you, you, you can't really figure it out. Like, to the, like you're looking at it, it's like something's off. Like it's, it's disjointed. David says, you broke my bones like that. Like I am all out of whack. So God well, I need you to cleanse me. Would you, would, you, would you purge and purify me? Would your word sanctify me again as I confess my sin? God, I also need you to restore me. David moves from asking God to cleanse him, which he knew he was in need of, to being restored by God. He knew that he had fallen far short of the standards that God had set for him, and he needed a new heart. He said, God, would you create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David knew that he needed his heart to be softened. He needed a transplant. He needed to be transformed. Beloved, sin leads to death every time. Every time sin leads to death. It leads to physical death. It leads to spiritual death. It leads to relational death. It leads to emotional death. It leads to different forms of death. But sin ultimately leads to death. And so David is saying, God, I need your mercy applied. And mercy applied looks like restoration and regeneration. To be born again, to be born anew. To take, he knew that his heart was too hard. It couldn't be pricked anymore by the conviction of the Spirit. It couldn't be pricked anymore by the troubles and pains of others. Something happened in David to David along that journey that caused his heart to be hardened, and he knew, God, I am not the same. Would you soften my heart? Would you create in me a new heart? Would you clean? my heart. That word there, create, is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, uh, was void and without form, and darkness was everywhere, and then, um, and, and that's Danny version, and then the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. <laughs> that same word there for create, he's saying, and, and, and something because 
when you open up to Genesis 1, there is this beautiful picture of God creating something out of nothing, but there's also this picture of like emptiness and also chaos. Like something is happening in this that is chaotic. And so God's creative power is now bringing cosmos out of chaos. It's bringing order out of this chaos. And so I believe David is hearkening back because this was a man who understood the scripture, the nature, and the character of God. And he's saying, God, would you, would you create in me a clean heart out of this chaotic state, this is disordered life of mine that is producing these devastating results? Would you do something? Would you? And it's beautiful because the spirit of that was there to do the will of God in creation. And David says, God, apart from your spirit, I cannot be made clean. I cannot be restored. I cannot be made new. But the beautiful thing about the love and mercy of God is that he is always there by his spirit, willing to restore and renew broken things. God is always willing to step into the lives of his children and to bring restoration. So David says, God, don't don't take your spirit from me. Would you, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation? Would you uphold me by your generous spirit? See, beloved, David lost his joy. He didn't lose his salvation. He grieved the spirit, but he wasn't rejected by God. But he wanted to experience God's presence again. Because when we live in unrepented sin, often God will allow us to keep the position, but we no longer experience the grace of his presence. Isn't that what what God told to Moses? All right, check this out, Moses. I made you a promise, so this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to let you and the children of Israel, these folks, your folks, I'm going to let them go into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. So you can have the position and the promise. You just can't have the presence. And sin will rob us of experiencing the presence of God. He's not distant. He hasn't removed himself. He hasn't left us. But what happens when we grieve and we quench the spirit? When we cut off the flow of the spirit in our lives. When we say, God, I don't really care about what you have to say right now. David said, God, I've lost my joy. I've lost my first love. I'm I'm doing all these duties. I'm serving in this position. I'm doing all the outward things. Everything looks fine to those who don't know on the outside. But my heart is far from you. My heart cannot be pricked by your grace and your love anymore. And I know that you love me. I know that you're merciful. I know that you're gracious. I just don't feel it anymore. It's become a duty and not a joy any longer. David cries out, God, would you restore to me the joy of your salvation? Would you remind me what it was like when you came and captured my heart? Would you remind me what it was like when you spoke to me, when I heard your gospel proclaimed and I knew that there was a God who loved me and who sent his son Jesus to die in my place and that I was not alone and that you would come and I would no longer have to be an orphan, but that you would come to me by your spirit, witnessing of the fact that you are alive and that I am in you and with you. Would you come and restore my salvation? Would you come and remind me again? you love me. 
when I feel and experience your mercy. I know you haven't shut your heart to me, but God, I've shut mine to you. Would you open it again? Beloved, if you find yourself in a place because of the decisions that you've made, and you find that your, your hope and your joy has been stolen, and you've been robbed of your comfort, and you feel far from God, and you feel hopeless to ask, will I ever feel as God loves me again? Will I ever feel that I can be restored? Will I ever feel as though I will move beyond my wrongs? I want you to hear me, that God is extending an invitation to you to receive his mercy, to receive his grace, to be made new, to be forgiven, to be washed clean, to experience the joy of knowing that you are loved again, to have your heart softened again, to remove the weights of the guilt and shame that you've been living under. Shame is a liar and is not a gospel response. Shame is declaring to some of us that who we are are problems. Who we are are issues that will never be fixed. And beloved, that is a lie. Jesus came to remove your shame. And he is merciful. And finally, David ends with God. Would you cleanse me? Would you restore me? But would you use me again? Like, I don't want just a position. I want, I want to be the man that you once used to bring people to you. He says this, he says that if you do this, God, if you do this, then I will teach transgressors your, transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. He's saying, if you do this, God, then I'll be able to worship you again. I'll be able to make your name known again. I'll be able to open up my mouth and I will shout forth your praises and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. I will declare to everybody my brokenness. Can you imagine this? David's the king. He records for all of human history his sin in Psalm 51. That takes a lot of humility. But he did what he said he was going to do. He did not just talk. He actually put actions to what he was saying. I will declare that you are faithful and I am unfaithful. You are righteous and I am unrighteous. But because of your faithfulness, I am now faithful. Because of your righteousness, I am now righteous. I will declare that, that it did not come from me, but I am solely dependent upon you because I am a sinner, but you are merciful because he used that word you in your 24 times. God, you, it is your salvation, your loving kindness. It is the multitude of your tender mercies. Against you I have sinned. He says this over and over and over again. And he says, God, only you can do this for me. Would you use me again? Beloved, David experienced many things that he did not deserve. He suffered many causes that, that were just. But this was not a just reason to suffer. This suffering was brought on by his sin. And beloved, I dare say this. In the year 2022, the church that we love, we experience, is suffering in this world not because of righteousness sake, and I'm going to go American church, is suffering not for righteousness sake, but for some unrighteous reasons. 
Because with our mouths, we often speak of the dignity and worth of all life. And with our mouths, we cover up the sins of leaders who have abused women and exploited their power for decades. James says this, out of the, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and curses. My brothers and sisters, this should not be the case. He says, is the spring sent for fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a freak treat my brother and uh, sisters bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No, no, springs yield both salt and fresh. No, no spring can bring forth both salt and fresh water. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. The same is true of a double-minded church. There are some things that God is working out in his church that we have to say yes to. David could not control the consequences that God gave him. He couldn't. He could not control those consequences. God said this, the sword would never leave your house because you bore this child with Bathsheba. It is a bl- you've given cause for the name of the Lord to be blasphemed. And this child is going to die. And you're going to have significant family problems. Another consequence was that while God didn't remove the position, he limited his power. David was no longer, the thing that David was, was in David's heart to do, which was build a temple for God to dwell in, he was no longer able to build. God would not let him do it. There were some things that died in David's life, even though God spared him and kept him and forgave him and restored him and used him and brought Jesus through his lineage. There were some things that he did not allow him to do. Beloved, one of the things that we have to wrestle with right now as a church is what is God trying to kill that we're trying to keep alive? What is it that God is trying to do away with that we're trying to hold on to? What is God trying to birth and bring forth in his church? But as long as we try to hold on to it, it creates this double-minded state. David says this, God, you don't desire sacrifices. Else I give that to you. There's a lot of us that can make a lot of sacrifices. But David, he's like, I don't, you don't desire sacrifices. I could give, I have enough resources to give all the sheep and the goat and the bulls and all, everything. But you don't desire that. You desire my brokenness. You desire mercy and justice and righteousness and truth. Beloved, as this church, we have to hold on to those things. We have to be those who practice those things. And finally, he says, I I think the, the best answer that we have for what God is calling us to as individuals who have sinned, who as, as a church and also as community and also as an institution, the, the church in America, gives greater grace. He gives greater grace to the humble. He despises the proud, but he gives greater grace to the humble. Beloved, what does it look like for us 
as the people of God to humble ourselves before God? What does it look like to get a vision for what God wants to do in us and through us? What does it look like for us to confront those who are having moments like David? What does it look like for us to be a place for the Bathshebas? What does it look like to be a consistent church? You know, as I approach this, it's like uh, you can't approach God's word without like being humbled by it. And whenever we, we all have sinned, right? The scripture says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and there's a difference between being outside of Christ and now in Christ. And as believers, so many of us, yeah, we, we, sin is not our nature anymore because we've received the spirit of God. Christ has died in our place and we're now in Christ. Yes, we still sin, but our very nature has been changed. But we find ourselves like David, some of us, having things in our heart that no one knows about, having things in our heart that have weighed us down, disfigured us, things that have hardened our heart, and maybe nobody knows, maybe nobody sees, but you know you're not the same. You know that you've been suffering under the weight of your sin. And you're afraid of what will happen if you open your heart to God. Beloved, he is inviting you to ask him for mercy because he gives freely. He's inviting you to come and believe that he loves you and believe that he's able to cleanse and restore you. Believe again that he loves you and he is faithful. And he's also extending an invitation to those of us who feel like Bathsheba who feel like we've been exploited. We've been taken advantage of. And instead of, and maybe, maybe in our personal lives or maybe by people in power, and when we've gone to try to get some form of justice, it's been covered up and nobody has cared or been concerned about how we feel about the matter. Nobody has called our name or addressed the fact that we, we've had to go home and suffer in silence and be depressed and filled with trauma and hurt and pain. There's too many Bathshebas among us, church. Too many women and children and men who, who have been hurt and wounded legitimately and nobody cares because they've been trying to protect the power. If you feel that way, if you feel like that is your experience, God is saying to you, I love you. I care for you. And they did not reflect my character to you. That is not who I am. I am merciful. I am loving. I am kind. I do not forget. And so God judged David for what he did, and he blessed Bathsheba and said, Her son Solomon became the king of Israel. Now, for some of us, we're like, that may not be enough, but I'm saying that God did not let it go. He kept his hand on it until it was dealt with. And God is a God of justice and he is fighting for you. And church, he said, uh, Nathan said, you blasphemed the name of God. Like all Israel has sinned now. 
And church, I dare say that we need to, if we may not have engaged, but we are complicit. And so we have to take ownership and say no longer. No longer will we be a part. No longer will we be a, 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 a place of refuge for those who exploit others and use their power to take advantage of others while the Bathshebas of the world are now cast away. But we will be a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of healing, a place where God's name goes forth, not only in word, but also in deed. Not a perfect church, but a pursuing church. A church where people receive the healing that they need. That is my prayer for the body of Christ. It closes with this Psalm 51, 18, 19 says, God, do good in your good pleasure to Zion, to your people. Would you build the walls of Jerusalem? Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Our lives are the sacrifice that we offer to God. Our yes. We don't long to go out there and slay bulls and goats. We don't have to do that. Jesus has been our eternal atonement for all of time. But our lives give off a fragrant offering. Our churches give off a fragrant offering. We want that sacrifice to be a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God and not a stench. Let's pray. Father God, I am humbled by your word. We are humbled by your word, God. It is, it is, it is confronting our hearts. It is confronting our souls. It is confronting our minds. It is, it is drawing us, God, out to you. God, we come broken. We come battered. We come wounded, Lord. God, we come, Lord, with, with, with just as we are, Lord, with our hands open. God, we, we can hold on to nothing else any longer. We can't hold on to positions. We can't hold on to anything else, Father God. So we come with our hands open before you. We come with our hearts open before you. We come with our minds open and saying, God, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us, Lord, of our sins? God, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Father God, we, we come, Lord, in need of a Savior that revives broken things, that can give us gladness for mourning, can give us rejoicing for heaviness. Father God, that comes and proclaims the gospel to the broken and contrite. And Father God, we also come, Lord, as those who have been broken by the hands and sins of others. We come, Lord, with bitter hearts, and we come, Lord, with enraged souls. We come, Father God, not believing if you care and not believing if you actually love us. But God, would you prick our hearts again? Would you remind us that you are not them? Would you remind us that you love us, Father God, beyond all doubt? Would you remind us that while you hung there on that cross, Lord Jesus, you had us in mind, that you died for us, that we may be with you where you are. Father God, would you restore your church? Would you bring healing and hope, Lord? Would you bring a light to the world? Would you bring a place, Father God, that engages the world with the truth of the gospel? That the only cause for offense we give is the offense of the gospel. 
Father God, would you make us, Lord, a light to those who don't know you? Lord Jesus, we pray. I want to invite you to, if you want to, just come to the altar. If you, you fall in any of those categories, as they sing this song, I want you just to feel free to be with God in this moment. So if you need to just be with God in this moment, be with God in this moment. He is right here. He is with you. Talk to him. He cares about whatever category you fall in. He cares for you, and he's right here with you.